turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're studying the book of Acts on Sunday morning, and we come to Acts chapter 17 now. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage we're studying today. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you this morning. We'll pick things up in uh, Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 22. Paul is in Athens, and he is uh, now formally begins to deliver his uh, address to uh, the Athenian uh, uh, intelligentsia and philosophers. And then Paul, verse 22, stood in the midst of the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life uh, to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And that's as far as we will go in the sermon this morning. But let's just finish it out for its context uh, where we'll be next week, Lord willing. And therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained, and He has given it to uh, given assurance of this, uh, uh, of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, uh, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray together now. Father, thank you for your word. It's, we marvel at the diversity of it, and we recognize that somehow uh, these handful of verses that we're going to study this morning uh, equip us as Christians in a way that we desperately need to be equipped. It does something, Lord, in us and conforming us into the image of your Son and making us, Lord, Christians who will not only be able to navigate the ups and downs of this life and one day end up in heaven, but to be able to introduce other people to you and into the life that we are blessed to live every single day. 
And so we pray that you would uh, fill us with your Spirit and give us an understanding of just the beauty, the magnificence of what it is that you spoke through the Apostle Paul uh, so many years ago and is equally powerful when it's declared today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's interesting. Here we are uh, with the Apostle Paul, and he's in the midst of, you know, a sermon uh, in Athens, speaking to the intelligentsia there and introducing them uh, to the gospel, God's offer of salvation uh, to them. And I mean, Paul's reasoning here by the Holy Spirit. You wonder, what in the world is he going to say to these people to make a dent? And here it is uh, recorded for us. And uh, I tried last week to just do it all in one Sunday, and then I tried to get the sermon all done. This, you know, do the whole thing, and I just can't do it without just heading through it and saying, well, that's what he said, but we wouldn't understand what it has to do with us. So, you have to deal with the fact that I am what I am, and uh, however Popeye put it, and, uh, and, and so it is. I, I was a little, as, it were, as we're looking at kind of the, uh, the, the interconnectedness of Paul's reasoning here and speaking to them, and my heart did sink this week when I was reading an article on the Internet where Microsoft did a study and declared that they have discovered that the uh, because of the use of electronics today, that the average person has an attention span of eight seconds. Do you know what that does to a person like me? <laughs> I lose all hope. So let's just close in prayer now. And uh, I've used up my eight seconds. Thankfully, there's a Holy Spirit who gives us a love for His Word and a hunger for His Word, or uh, I'd be a dinosaur put out uh, to pasture. Now, uh, this is a very, very significant uh, portion of the book of Acts, and it's famous, uh, this address of Paul to uh, this very august kind of audience there on, uh, on Mars Hill. And it's very significant and famous because here you have the Apostle Paul, a record of one of his sermons. We don't have a lot of sermons of his in the book of Acts, but a record in which he is delivering a sermon, an evangelistic sermon, to a group of Greek philosophers there in Athens. And last week we noted uh, Paul's attitude toward his audience, toward his listeners, very, very polite and so forth, and, uh, and wanted to learn from that because if we don't address people properly, if we don't treat them properly, then they will never hang around long enough in order to then listen to the message that we carry, which is the most valuable uh, thing of all. This week we want to look at what Paul actually did declare to them and uh, the message he ultimately uh, delivered to them. We notice uh, the powerful introduction. It's really magnificent uh, that Paul used uh, in uh, using their altar to the unknown God to kind of build a bridge to begin to communicate to these uh, men in, uh, in Athens. He was evidently walking through the city of Athens, and we know that Athens from historians tells us that it was a literal forest of idols and temples and altars, 
And as he was walking through and reading all of these, if you've ever been through a cemetery and you kind of read the name and how long, and I mean, you can't go by these kind of anything without uh, reading it, some curiosity. So he's going through the city, and, and he's, as he's reading, who is this one erected to, and who is this temple of God to, and who is this idol and idol representing, and, and so forth. He noted that they had also erected an idol to the unknown God. And so how does a Christian begin a conversation with a non-Christian about God, the God of the Bible, in a religious conversation? And usually, in order to begin that conversation, it requires a point of contact with uh, the Christian having taken the time somehow to notice something about the person that we're trying to talk to, something about their life, and then using it as a means to then speak to them about the Lord. Very often when you'll, in any church you attend, when there's a visiting speaker, uh, very often the speaker will then pick up a local newspaper or watch the local news and find out a little bit about what's happening in the city and uh, he will then uh, uh, mention those facts, one or two, in his introduction to the congregation, and he's building a bridge uh, to the audience. I know something about you. Uh, I cared enough about you and beginning a relationship with you to investigate uh, some of these things. And it's in order to make that personal contact with the congregation. And when a person does that, a speaker does that, essentially they're following Paul's model here, building a bridge to the listener by the means of something that we realize that we have in common. When Paul made mention of their altar to the unknown God, they, he had their attention immediately. You've got to put yourself in the audience here uh, a little bit. He has just entered into their world. And they had to begin to think, where in the world is he going to go with this? And a second realization that they would have had is that whatever he believes about God, he clearly hasn't been influenced or converted by what it is that we worship. Now, the reason that there was an altar in Athens built to the unknown God was even though Athens was literally filled with gods and goddesses and altars and temples and all, they were still concerned. They had this nagging doubt that we might have overlooked one, and we might have even overlooked the most very important uh, one. And if we overlook this particular God, then they might be displeased at being overlooked and judge us as a result. And so the erection of this altar to the unknown God was a precautionary measure uh, against offending this God. Now, this, the erection of this altar was also a public admission that there might be a God that they'd never heard of. And Paul just uh, uses this as a great opening to speak to them, and he simply let them know that there was a God that was unknown to them as yet, and that he was, as a result of his sermon, going to rectify that ignorance uh, on their part. And so, as philosophers and as religious people, this is Paul's audience, uh, uh, pagan philosophy, pagan religion, Paul completely has their attention. 
Now, the application of this is that making a point of contact with a person to then direct the conversation to the Lord, it doesn't have to be overtly religious or overtly philosophical, though sometimes that's a good thing. I remember one man who was just a soul winner like crazy, uh, maybe the greatest one I've ever personally known in leading individuals to the Lord. Uh, he would walk into a coffee shop and ask the whole room whether they were saved yet. And he was so winsome of a person, so unthreatening as a person, and such vitality, a torrent of living water coming out of his innermost being, nobody was offended. And then one by one, he would begin to have discussions with them over time. Uh, nothing wrong with walking up to somebody at a bus stop or any place and being very, very direct and say, what have you figured out to be the meaning and the purpose of life? and then see what it is that they say. Uh, they might say, following the Oakland Raiders or the San Francisco 49ers or whatever it might be, but uh, we'll find out the degree to which they've given some consideration uh, to that. But there's many things that are non-religious and non-philosophical that you can use as a, a point of contact. Sometimes children, uh, the subject comes up. And a person might say, well, I don't know what I would have done as a parent, or I don't know what I would do as a parent if I didn't have uh, God's instruction in the Bible uh, with how to fashion their morality and their direction in life. I don't know how, I, how people raise children apart from the Lord. And then to see where the conversation might go. might be the subject of loneliness where someone might say, you know, no matter how many relationships I've had in life, I still always found myself deeply lonely until I became a Christian and entered into a personal relationship with God and discovered in this the relationship I realized I'd been looking for all along that no other human uh, relationship could fulfill. Trials, difficulties in life, valleys in life are a, a great way when we are in contact with people, they find themselves in that kind of a place to then begin to speak about the things of the Lord or to probe for an opportunity in this way where we might say something like, I don't know what I would do in life if I didn't have God to help me and I didn't have the perspective that comes from the Bible. Candidly, I don't know how anyone makes it through life uh, apart from God. And then you listen to their response or no response and move accordingly. Aging is a great lead-in to talk about the Lord. Uh, illness, disease, always, easy as can be. Death, war, these things that everyone uh, faces in life, the tragedies of life, the current news that's going on, all of them open doors to conversations about God and about our need for Him. Well, you get the idea. And Paul just simply found what was the subject matter that would allow this kind of bringing God to their attention. And uh, with this audience, it was to make mention of the unknown uh, God. What the erection of this altar to the unknown God revealed about the ancient Athenians, and Paul knew it, uh, and we need to know it as well, is first of all that man is incurably religious. Why is man incurably 
uh, incurably religious. Thought I made up a new word, didn't you? Why is man incurably religious? The reason that he is, as Solomon put in the book of Ecclesiastes, is that God has put eternity in our hearts. That is that we will never, ever be able to find ultimate satisfaction by, in life by exploring it solely on the physical and the material realm because God has put eternity in each one of our hearts as, as His created in His image. We have been made for an eternal relationship with God, and we will not find peace, we will not find satisfaction until we are engaged in that relationship. St. Augustine put it famously and perfectly, and he said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There really is a cross-shaped hole in the heart of every single individual human being that only Jesus can fill. Jesus taught that a spiritual thirst can never be quenched by a physical something. It can only be quenched by a spiritual something. A spiritual thirst can never be quenched by a physical something, by something from the material world. Jesus declared to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, physical water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, some of you might have read the recent uh, interviews with uh, film director Martin Scorsese, and uh, he recently released his new film called Silence, and it's a film that has a spiritual and a religious theme. And I read an article here uh, just in the last uh, few days where he declared that he had tried for 20 years to make this particular film, and uh, he considers himself to be a Catholic, though very lapsed, I would say so, in the light of the films that he's made, uh, but, uh, but still, you know, holds to a spirituality and so forth in his life. But he, he, uh, the article quoted him as saying, I was constantly discouraged uh, from making this film by Hollywood and, uh, and uh, said the 74-year-old director, who insisted that the human need for spirituality cannot be ignored. Uh, he said his film, Silence, which he had been trying to make for two decades, was a meditation on the spiritual reflex. A meditation on the spiritual reflex. He declared it does exist, so how do we nurture it? And he's talking about the fact that man is incurably religious, that we, uh, that we are religious and spiritual beings. It is a part of our reflex. It is uh, in us innately by God as much as any other reflex would be there. It's interesting in the light of that, that the Bible declares that every single person in this world and in this room uh, is a 
worshiper. And not only a worshiper, but every single person in the world is a worshiper of God. Somebody could sit in a room like this, and because you're polite, you will protest in your own mind and in your own heart, and you'll say, I don't agree with that at all. I don't have a God. In fact, I don't even believe in God. Well, what does God have to say about that? (laughs) And what God has to say about that is He doesn't accept it. Because practically speaking, God knows that there are no such things as atheists in the world. The atheists who deny the existence of God get all of the attention, of course, today. But it's important to realize that as much as the atheists do not believe uh, in the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible doesn't believe in atheists because, practically speaking, they simply don't exist. Well, if all of us are worshipers, then how in the world does a person identify the God that we worship, that we serve, whether knowingly or unknowingly? By simply identifying the master passion of my life, by identifying that thing that captures most fully my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, by identifying what is it that excites me, most in life? What is it that I get out of bed uh, each morning for? What gets me out of that bed? What do I think about more than anything else in life? Where do I invest my discretionary time? Where does my money go? We have the old saying about uh, following the money to get to the bottom of something, and it's very, very true spiritually or in terms of what we worship as well. Where our money goes is a good indicator of what my master passion is in my life. And when I answer these questions and questions like them, I'll have a good idea of who or what my God is, what is the master passion of my life. And it can include money or sports or power or sex or travel or food or entertainment or nature or creation or self, and on and on and on the list can go. The question is never whether I have a God or not, but rather, is what I am worshiping in my life worthy of my worship? But the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible takes all of it even further and declares that not only does every, is every person a worshiper, but further teaches that we become like the God that we worship. And God brings this out in Psalm 115 in the Old Testament. But the principle is there. For example, in looking in our own lives to see whether the principle is true, that we not only each of us worship some master passion in life, but we become more like the master passion that we worship. The man who worships money only becomes more and more greedy and addicted to money. The man who worships power only becomes more and more power-hungry as time goes on. The man who worships sex only becomes more and more lust-filled as a result. The man who worships himself only becomes more and more selfish as time passes on. And if we become like the God that we worship, and we do, then, the on, then only the Lord can be safely worshipped in this 
world. And the knowledge that we become more like the God we worship is one of the most exciting verses in the whole Bible to the man or woman who has made Jesus Christ the Lord of our life and made Him the object of our worship. Now, second, this erection of the altar to the unknown God tells us, it reveals to us as Christians in sharing our faith. If I'm a Christian who does not share my faith, then this is going to become cumbersome, this sermon. Uh, But if I'm a Christian who does share my faith, I'm looking for an opportunity to share my faith. This passage speaks very, very important things to us. And so the erection of this altar to the unknown God tells us and reveals to us as Christians in sharing our faith that until a person is engaged in the worship of the true and the living God, the God of the Bible, then they are insecure in the object of their worship. No matter how deeply they might keep that insecurity buried inside of them, No matter how satisfied they declare themselves to be with their life or their atheism or their philosophy of life or even their religion, until they trust in Jesus, they can never know true satisfaction and true peace. And even if we share with them, even if they're not yet ready to face it at the moment, uh, we have done them a favor by letting them know that their search will only truly end with Jesus because only the Holy Spirit coming into their life and then bringing them into a relationship with God as a result of their putting their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, only the Holy Spirit coming into their life as a result of that can bring true spiritual satisfaction and an end to the speech, uh, the search rather. Now, I don't say this out of arrogance, but I say it because it needs to be a confidence that we have as Christians in the need of the person that we're speaking to, no matter how what kind of an appearance of peace and satisfaction uh, they may uh, emanate. And because this is, according to the Bible, their spiritual reality. As a Christian, I have never, ever been even remotely uh, tempted to raise up an altar in my life to the unknown God. And neither have you. And why is there no such temptation or superstition in our life? It is because I am fully satisfied as a Christian. And why am I fully satisfied that my spiritual search is over in becoming a Christian? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, because the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But that peace, that satisfaction, belongs solely to the person who's been born again by the Holy Spirit and has the Holy Spirit in their 
life. And praise the Lord for the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice in continuing here, Paul's description to this audience of the God that they don't know yet, the God of the Bible. He begins in verse 24 uh, in introducing uh, the God of the Bible to them as the Creator, as the Creator of the universe. And here Paul begins with them where most missionaries will tell you to begin in trying to reach pagans, and I use the term affectionately, in trying to reach people who have no background in the Bible, no background in uh, the God of the Bible, uh, such as the Jews had, and how to reach a person like that about God and to introduce them to the God of the Bible, the best way to, is to introduce Him as Creator. And the idea that Paul lays out here uh, is that behind all of the creation that we witness around us every single day as human beings, we see it with a naked eye, we can see it with a telescope, we can see it with a microscope. Behind all of that creation, there is a Creator. And to uh, help them to consider, as he's speaking to them, that everywhere that you look in life, creation speaks of a Creator, and nobody doubts it anywhere in life. You see a truck, you see a house, you see a skyscraper, uh, you uh, see a, a nice hot meal, you see a painting, and we realize that these things are not self-existent. These things don't just happen on their own. Skyscrapers don't just pop up out of the ground, but they're the creation of someone, that there is always a creator behind the creation. And then further we realize that the creator is always greater than the creation by virtue of his ability to create it. So you go to a museum. And you look at this magnificent, beautiful painting that is on the wall. It captures you. I mean, it's beautiful beyond description. And when we see that, and it's one of the joys in life to experience that, we don't stand before the painting and worship it. What happens? We immediately look to the name of the artist usually in the lower right-hand corner of the painting, and then we'd identify who painted this, and then we stand in awe of their creative ability, the talent that they have, the ability they have to bring a painting like this into existence. For those of you who aren't so artsy, we'll talk about food, uh, though food is becoming an art as well, isn't it? See how it is trying to be a preacher in the 2017 Everything's got to be qualified. It's, it's an awful thing. But here is the meal. It's put before you. It's delicious. But you don't talk to the meal. You don't compliment the meal. We recognize there's a creator behind that meal, or we better. And then we compliment the one who created the meal. And what is true of a painting or true of a meal is also true of all of creation, all of the heavens and the earth. It speaks of a creator, and it's intended to do so. And it makes us realize that the creator behind the creation is greater than the creation. And that's why it is completely illogical to worship creation or nature, because it is always to stop one step short in the progression, 
to worship the rose or to worship the Alps or worship Yosemite or the ocean, uh, to worship the creation, is to always stop short of the logical progression that there must be a Creator who is behind these things, and that Creator is greater than these things, and only that Creator, not His creation, is worthy of my worship. And all of these uh, things testify to, day and night, the existence of a Creator. And Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His, that is God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul says there is no excuse to go through life without recognizing there is a Creator behind the creation that we live in the middle of and indeed are a part of on a daily uh, basis. The physical universe which we can see, it reveals the existence of God who cannot be seen. And I think as Paul lays this argument uh, from creation down before these philosophers, it's something that is so profound and so deep and beautiful, and yet it's so simple that a child uh, can understand it. Now, also in all of this, Paul was arguing God's existence on the basis of design as well, because he declared, you notice in the verse there, he declared God not only to be the maker of the world and everything in it, but he goes on further to describe Him as the Lord of heaven and earth. And the idea is that everywhere that we look in life, we see design. And we recognize that there must be a designer behind that design. Design always testifies in life to a uh, designer behind the design. The classic illustration is a watch. No one would be foolish enough to believe that a watch just happens all by itself. You put some springs and some hands and some glass and some metal in an old cigar box and you bury it someplace and come back however many years later that you want to do and, and then to f expect on any kind of a rational level that I'm going to open up that cigar box and find a fully functioning watch. Uh, nobody would believe that about a watch, but we believe it about the design that's around us all the time in creation. And Paul is trying to break through with these, his audience here on that issue. When we see a watch, we recognize that watch didn't just happen by itself. There's a designer behind that design. And everywhere you look in life and you see design, whether it's the Golden Gate Bridge or a computer or a jet, you realize that didn't just happen. There is a designer behind that design, and further we realize that the designer is always greater than the design by virtue of his or her ability to design it. And again, what is true of the design of a jet is also true of all of the design that we see around us every day in creation the seasons in life, uh, the cycles of nature, the intricacy 
of creation, the interwovenness of creation around it. All of it speaks to us of a designer behind it. David uh, wrote of this in uh, in Psalm uh, 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. And so creation and design speaks, he declares in Psalm 19. I won't read it to you uh, all right now. You can check it out for yourself. But it speaks, he declares, uh, declares that it speaks day and night in a language everyone can understand of God's existence, the existence of God who is a creator. Someone has said, wonderfully I think, that if the stars came out only once every thousand years, we'd stay up all night and look at them in awe and wonder. And I think it's true. But because we see them every single night, we miss what they are intended to communicate to us. Now, it is important as Christians to be able to argue, not only to be able to listen to someone like me say it, but to take all that I've said in arguing from creation and design and on some level to make it our own, where we could be able to lay that out uh, with somebody else who doesn't yet know the Lord, isn't atheist or Uh, doesn't believe in the God of the Bible or believe in a creator and so forth, and to be able to speak as Paul has done here for the existence of God, uh, the God of the Bible from creation and design. And God does it continually uh, throughout His Word, and Paul does it here. And I know that sometimes you'll run into philosophy majors or people who dabble in philosophy, and they will... uh, you know, uh, endeavor to respond to the argument, but the argument is rock solid. It is immovable. God uses it continually through His Word, and then Paul uses it in his preaching and trying to get through to this particular uh, audience. It is something that anyone can understand and will uh, remove an obstacle for people in then, you know, coming to explore uh, the God of the Bible. And so we're to use this argument of Paul here from uh, creation and design and to do it as confidently as he does in this ultra-intellectual and philosophical environment. You and, you and I will never intellectualize one person in the kingdom of God. That is a Holy Spirit thing. Uh, but we can use what God has given us in His Word to declare to people, to make them think about these things, and then it's up to the Holy Spirit to add His amen uh, to all of it. But this is something in an increasingly pagan and secular society that we will need to have as kind of a fundamental uh, knowledge for speaking to people, however you might put it, uh, in uh, your own words. Now, notice Paul then makes an application of this truth that he's made concerning uh, creation and creator and design and designer. Uh, He applies this truth now to his uh, audience in Athens, 
And uh, since God is the Creator, He's both the Creator and the Lord of the heaven and the earth, He's bigger than His creation, Paul communicates to them, and as a result, He does not dwell in temples made with hands. How in the world could He? Ouch! When you think about who He is talking to, this is temple central. This is idolatry central. This is altar central of the ancient world. And Paul brings the application of what he's just said here and then declares to them, because he is who he is, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. And yeah, that would have hurt that audience a little bit, but they needed to hear it. And I think that in speaking that, Paul has just set off a spiritual and a philosophical nuclear bomb there in idolatry uh, central. And he does it right under the shadow of the Acropolis, the Parthenon. He delivers it, uh, this news to these philosophers and, uh, and so forth uh, with the temple of Zeus within uh, eyeshot of the audience and of Paul uh, himself. And Additionally, in presenting God as the creator of the heaven and the earth, he has uh, essentially laid waste to two notions widely held in that city and held in our world today, and that is the notion of polytheism, the belief that there are many gods. He has just, in what he has shared, completely wiped out uh, the worldview of the Epicureans that were spoken of earlier uh, in the passage. And, uh, and indeed, he has taken and wiped out uh, most of the Greeks who were in the city worshiping not just one of these multitudes of gods, but worshiping all of them in some uh, degree. It is the wipe out of much of Hinduism uh, today when Paul declares, no, there is only one God and He is the Creator. It also does, as Paul is speaking here, he delivers a fatal blow biblically to what we know today as pantheism, the belief that everything is God. This was the belief of the Stoics, and so he uh, undermines the belief system of the Stoic in his audience as he's uh, uh, sharing uh, with them. Most of the New Age movement and whatever it's being called now and its reincarnations that are going on uh, continually are based upon this view of pantheism, the belief that everything uh, is God. And Paul says, no, there is only one Creator, and everything else is His creation. I think it would have been very, very interesting to have been sitting in that audience as they are listening to Paul deliver this message and see their reaction to what he's saying. And the, the interesting thing is they didn't stop Paul, not at this point. And so they've listened to him intently, and they understand the logic of his argument and his application. They cannot squawk against it. And so Paul then, uh, in verses 25 through 28, he then declared that the Lord is the giver and the sustainer of life. Not only is He the creator of all creation, but He is the giver and the sustainer of life. In other words, God doesn't need anything or anyone. God is self-existent. 
God is not dependent upon mankind or anything else He has created for His existence. He is completely self-sufficient. This is what Paul is bringing out in verse 25. Well, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think to myself, that's just the God that I need. Who needs a God you have to take care of? What, I need more problems in my life? I need something more to look after and be responsible for? I need a God now that needs me to take care of Him? Are you kidding me? One more thing to appease or look after in my life? No, thank you. We need a God. And this is the point Paul is making. We need a God who can take care of Himself, but further than that, who can also take care of us, which Paul then brings Paul uh, to his point in verse 25, and that is that this God, the God of the Bible, is the source of life and breath and everything else humanity possesses. In other words, our existence is completely dependent upon Him, and His existence is not dependent upon us. And our existence is so completely dependent upon Him that we need Him to provide us with our very next breath. That's how dependent we are upon Him for life. As Daniel declared to the Babylonian king Belteshazzar, who was blaspheming God when uh, Daniel spoke to him, and Daniel warned him, and the God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And it's not just an Old Testament principle, it's a New Testament principle. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Literally in the Greek, by Him all things are held together. The, the reason our bodies don't explode into a gazillion or however the number would be of atoms in all direction is not because of atomic glue, as scientists once believed, but because the Lord Himself in His power holds our lives together, holds life together, by in Him all things consist. I remember in, in this vein early in my Christian life. It was my first exposure to Christian television and Christian radio and some of the pitches that can go on there to try and separate you from your money. A lot of people, a Christian ministry, God talks about giving and so forth, and there's a lot of good Christian ministry that's on television and on radio. But uh, not everything is on the up and up. <laughs> I don't need to tell you if you've uh, watched uh, very much of it, but I remember hearing uh, pitches as a new Christian. This was all new to me uh, by certain televangelists, and they would declare, God needs you like He's never needed you before, trying to raise uh, some money. And I would think to myself, God needs me? Things are way worse than I thought. <laughs> if God needs me? No, God needs you 
more, you know, than He's ever needed you before is only true in the sense that He's never needed you before. He doesn't need us at all. He uses us. He gives us opportunity to give and so forth, but He he doesn't need us. And in these two brief statements that, that temples do not contain God in verse 24 and that the services in the temples add nothing to God in verse 25, Paul has virtually wiped out the entire religious system of Greece before the protectors of the religious systems of Greece in Athens. And yet you have to give them credit. They continue to listen because they understood the philosophical logic of all that Paul was saying. To view God as someone we need to take care of as opposed to someone we need to take care of us, it reverses the roles between God and man to the point of absurdity. And Paul has laid that point down. Now, notice in verse 26, and I'm very nearly done. Paul declares, he has made from one blood every nation of men uh, to, uh, to dwell on the face uh, of the earth. In other words, he created man. Uh, he is not a creation of man. Uh, God is not a projection of man or an invention of man as virtually all of the Greek gods, and indeed all, indeed all of the Greek gods were. Paul declares further, and it's fascinating, that he is not the sole property of one nation. You would say, well, who would think that God was the property of one nation? Of the Jews. The Jews in their history forgot that God had called them and made them His people but in order to bless them to then reach the Gentile world. And they forgot that last part of things. Uh, the people that were worshiping there, uh, so many of what was happening in the, uh, in the worship of the, the Greek gods and, and that was happening in the place. The Greeks at the time, they believed that they were the superior nation. They were the superior uh, race on all levels, including uh, religion as well. And they considered themselves superior to all other nationalities. And Paul comes in and says, it isn't true. All nations, all nationalities come from a common ancestor. And here he is referring clearly to Adam. And there is only one race among men in God's eyes, and that we were, are all members of the human race. And there is no race in the world that is superior to another race. I'd like to preach a sermon just on that, but I've got to keep it going. Verse 26, Paul then went on, and uh, he was, has, declares that God has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. And what Paul is saying here is that every nation is equally loved and cared for by God. And again, Paul lovingly smote their sense of superiority over all other nationalities and races. And in doing so, he's laying down the foundation for the truth that each of us are the descendants of Adam. 
and as such, sinners who are equally in need of God's forgiveness and His salvation. And that in knowing this, each of us has a responsibility then to seek this Creator that He's been talking about, this self-existent God He's been talking about, the sustaining God that He's been talking about, and that if we will seek Him, we will, uh, can be sure that we will find Him, as He declares in verses 27 and 8. Verse 27, because He's not far from each of us, and verse 27 and 28, because he isn't hard for a, find, a, a seeker to find. As Jeremiah put it, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In the ancient world, so many people went through so many religious rituals and exercises just in an attempt, first of all, to gain the attention of God. And then adding ritual and, and so forth on top of all of that to then gain the favor of God in order to draw near to God. But the mere, the fact that of the matter is that, is that God, Paul says, is very near to us and a relationship with Him is just a prayer away. As Jesus famously taught for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, that's you, would believe in Him, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, would not perish but have everlasting life. To come to God in a room like this this morning and to say to God, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that your assessment of me is completely accurate. How can I argue with it? I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son Jesus into the world to die on the cross to pay a price for the forgiveness of my sins that I could never pay myself, and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And so this morning I choose to turn from all of my, uh, the gods that have their origin in me, the gods that are unworthy of my worship, and I recognize it today. I turn from my own directions in life, and I turn to you, and I put my trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And then when a person does that, the greatest miracle that a person will ever experience occurs when the Holy Spirit then comes into your life. And you are born again now by the Holy Spirit. And it is a spiritual birth that is every bit as real and powerful as your physical birth. He's so close that he can hear that prayer that you would pray to him, even if you whispered that prayer. How about a God that matches our needs? How about a God to take care of you, the God who created you, the God 
who is near and is brought near still by putting our faith in his son. And is that your need this morning? Then simply ask Jesus into your heart this morning and this wonderful reality of a spiritual birth will occur in your life. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service who would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God, the relationship with the God that Paul has just begun to explain in this sermon to the philosophers in Athens. This passage is a beautiful apologetic by the Apostle Paul for Christianity in a very, very challenging, very, very secular environment. And because that environment is increasingly becoming our environment, the instruction that is here, even though it demands more than eight seconds of our attention in order to follow it, it is priceless to us, priceless if we desire to reach people and remove obstacles to their faith in coming to know the true and the living God of the Bible. It, and this is why I have the ability, it would take a lot for me to just kind of blow through this thing in 40 minutes on one Sunday morning, but we wouldn't bring, be able to bring out what we desperately need to know for our own lives to be effective in answering the legitimate questions that men and women have in their search for this God that we know. And so a tremendous passage of Scripture for being equipped in all of this. We will finish the third part next week. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this sermon. Thank you for your Holy Spirit upon the Apostle Paul. And thank you for being able to study and to see what he did and what he spoke and how you used him in, in that environment. No environment more hostile to the things that he was speaking or more skeptical at least to those things. And Lord, we pray that you would increasingly in our own lives help us to understand our faith. And I pray this for myself in a way that is deeper, that we would know our Bibles, that we would know at least a basic apologetic as is outlined here, that we would go deeper in the things of you as deep and deeper as the world is going deeper into secularism and into atheism and into new age and into false philosophy and religion, Lord. We pray that you would take us by the hand and give us a hunger for these things, develop them within our lives so that we can, not in an argumentative form, but in a way of love, provide them with an answer for the incredible hope that is within us and that we know they are continuing to search for. 
Father, we want every man, woman, and child to know what we have with you. Would you use this time in your word this morning to continue to develop that within us? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.